Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagdorn. Today, The Beasts of Tarzan, Chapters 15 and 16. And now, Chapter 15, Down the Ugambi. Halfway between the Ugambi and the village of Waganwazam, Tarzan came upon the pack moving slowly along his old spoor. Mugambi could scarce believe that the trail of the Russian and the mate of his savage master had passed so close to that of the pack. It seemed incredible that two human beings should have come so close to them without having been detected by some of the marvelously keen and alert beasts. But Tarzan pointed out the spore of the two he trailed, and at certain points the native could see that the man and woman must have been in hiding. It had been apparent to Tarzan from the first that Jane and Rokoff were not traveling together. The spore showed distinctly that the young woman had been a considerable distance ahead of the Russian at first, though the farther the ape-man continued along the trail, the more obvious it became that the man was rapidly overhauling his quarry. At first there had been the spore of wild beasts over the footprints of Jane Clayton, while upon the top of all Rokoff's spore showed that he had passed over the trail after the animals had left their records upon the ground. But later there were fewer and fewer animal imprints occurring between those of Jane's and the Russian's feet, until as he approached the river the ape-man became aware that Rokoff could not have been more than a few hundred yards behind the girl. He felt they must be close ahead of him now, and with a little thrill of expectation, he leaped rapidly forward ahead of the pack. Swinging swiftly through the trees, he came out upon the riverbank at the very point at which Rokoff had overhauled Jane as she endeavored to launch the cumbersome dugout. In the mud along the bank, the ape-man saw the footprints of the two he sought, but there was neither boat nor people there when he arrived, nor at first glance any sign of their whereabouts. It was plain that they had shoved off in a native canoe and embarked upon the bosom of the stream, and as the ape-man's eye ran swiftly down the course of the river beneath the shadows of the overarching trees, he saw in the distance, just as he rounded a bend that shut it off from his view, a drifting dugout in the stern of which was the figure of a man. Just as the pack came in sight of the river, they saw their agile leader racing down the river's bank, leaping from hummock to hummock of the swampy ground that spread between them and a little promontory which rose just where the river curved inward from their sight. To follow him, it was necessary for the heavy, cumbersome apes to make a wide detour, and she did too, who hated water. Mugambi followed after them as rapidly as he could in the wake of the great white master. A half hour of rapid traveling across the swampy neck of land and over the rising promontory brought Tarzan, by a shortcut, to the inward bend of the winding river, and there before him on the bosom of the stream he saw the dugout, and in its stern, Nicholas Rokoff. Jane was not with the Russian. At sight of his enemy the broad scar upon the ape-man's brow turned scarlet, and there rose to his lips the hideous, bestial challenge of the bull-ape. Rokoff shuddered as the weird and terrible alarm fell upon his ears. Cowering in the bottom of the boat, his teeth chattering in terror, he watched the man he feared above all other creatures upon the face of the earth as he ran quickly to the edge of the water. Even though the Russian knew that he was safe from his enemy, the very sight of him threw him into a frenzy of trembling cowardice, which became frantic hysteria as he saw the white giant dive fearlessly into the forbidding waters of the tropical river. With steady, powerful strokes, the ape-man forged out into the stream toward the drifting dugout. Now Rokoff seized one of the paddles lying in the bottom of the craft, and, with terror-wide eyes still glued upon the living death that pursued him, struck out madly in an effort to augment the speed of the unwieldy canoe. And from the opposite bank, a sinister ripple, unseen by either man, moved steadily toward the half-naked swimmer. Tarzan had reached the stern of the craft at last. One hand upstretched grasped the gunwale. Rokoff sat frozen with fear, unable to move a hand or foot, his eyes riveted on the face of his nemesis. 
Then a sudden commotion in the water behind the swimmer caught his attention. He saw the ripple, and he knew what caused it. At the same instant Tarzan felt mighty jaws close upon his right leg. He tried to struggle free and raise himself over the side of the boat. His efforts would have succeeded had not this unexpected interruption galvanized the malign brain of the Russian into instant action with a sudden promise of deliverance and revenge. Like a venomous snake, the man leaped toward the stern of the boat and with a single swift blow struck Tarzan across the head with a heavy paddle. The ape-man's fingers slipped from their hold upon the gunwale. There was a short struggle at the surface and then a swirl of waters, a little eddy, and a burst of bubbles soon smoothed out by the flowing current marked for the instant the spot where Tarzan of the apes Lord of the Jungle, disappeared from the sight of men beneath the gloomy waters of the dark and forbidding Ugambi. Weak from terror, Rokoff sank shuddering into the bottom of the dugout. For a moment he could not realize the good fortune that had befallen him. All that he could see was the figure of a silent, struggling white man disappearing beneath the surface of the river to unthinkable death in the slimy mud of the bottom. Slowly all that it meant to him filtered into the mind of the Russian, and then a cruel smile of relief and triumph touched his lips. But it was short-lived, for just as he was congratulating himself that he was now comparatively safe to proceed upon his way to the coast unmolested, a mighty pandemonium rose from the riverbank close by. As his eyes sought the authors of the frightful sound, he saw standing upon the shore, glaring at him with hate-filled eyes, a devil-faced panther surrounded by the hideous apes of Hakut, and in the forefront of them a giant black warrior who shook his fist at him, threatening him with terrible death. The nightmare of that flight down the Ugambi with the hideous horde racing after him by day and by night, now abreast of him, now lost in the mazes of the jungle far behind for hours and once for a whole day, only to reappear again upon his trail grim, relentless, and terrible, reduced the Russian from a strong and robust man to an emaciated, white-haired, fear-gibbering thing before ever the bay and the ocean broke upon his hopeless vision. Past populous villages he had fled. Time and again warriors had put out in their canoes to intercept him but each time the hideous horde had swept into view to send the terrified natives shrieking back to the shore to lose themselves in the jungle. Nowhere in his flight had he seen aught of Jane Clayton. Not once had his eyes rested upon her since that moment at the river's brim his hand had closed upon the rope attached to the bow of her dugout, and he had believed her safely in his power again, only to be thwarted an instant later as the girl snatched up a heavy express rifle from the bottom of the craft and leveled it full at his breast. Quickly he had dropped the rope then, and seeing her float away beyond his reach. But a moment later, he had been racing upstream toward a little tributary, in the mouth of which was hidden the canoe in which he and his party had come thus far upon their journey, in pursuit of the girl and Anderson. What had become of her? There seemed little doubt in the Russian's mind, however, but that she had been captured by warriors from one of the several villages she would have been compelled to pass on her way down to the sea. Well, he was at least rid of most of his human enemies— but at that he would gladly have had them all back in the land of the living could he thus have been freed from the menace of the frightful creatures who pursued him with awful relentlessness, screaming and growling at him every time they came within sight of him. The one that filled him with the greatest terror was the panther, the flaming-eyed, devil-faced panther whose grinning jaws gaped wide at him by day, and whose fiery orbs gleamed wickedly out across the water from the Sumerian blackness of the jungle nights. The sight of the mouth of the Ugambi filled Rokoff with renewed hope, for there— "'upon the yellow waters of the bay, "'floated the Kincaid at anchor. "'He had sent the little steamer away to coal "'while he had gone up the river, "'leaving Polvich in charge of her, "'and he could have cried aloud in his relief "'as he saw that she had returned in time to save him. "'Frantically he alternately paddled furiously toward her "'and rose to his feet waving his paddle "'and crying aloud in an attempt to attract the attention "'of those on board. 
but loud as he screamed, his cries awakened no answering challenge from the deck of the silent craft. Upon the shore behind him a hurried backward glance revealed the presence of the snarling pack. Even now, he thought, these man-like devils might yet find a way to reach him, even upon the deck of the steamer, unless there were those there to repel them with firearms. What could have happened to those he had left upon the Kincaid? Where was Polvich? Could it be that the vessel was deserted, and that, after all, he was doomed to be overtaken by the terrible fate that he had been flying from through all these hideous days and nights? He shivered as might one upon whose brow death has already laid his clammy finger. Yet he did not cease to paddle frantically toward the steamer, and at last, after what seemed an eternity, the bow of the dugout bumped against the timbers of the Kincaid. Over the ship's side hung a monkey ladder, but as the Russian grasped it to ascend to the deck, he heard a warning challenge from above, and looking up, gazed into the cold, relentless muzzle of a rifle. After Jane Clayton, with rifle leveled at the breast of Rokoff, had succeeded in holding him off until the dugout in which she had taken refuge had drifted out upon the bosom of the Ugambi, beyond the man's reach, she had lost no time in paddling to the swiftest sweep of the channel, nor did she for long days and weary nights cease to hold her craft to the most rapidly moving part of the river, except when during the hottest hours of the day she had been wont to drift as the current would take her, lying prone in the bottom of the canoe, her face sheltered from the sun with a great palm leaf. Thus only did she gain rest upon the voyage. At other times she continually sought to augment the movement of the craft by wielding the heavy paddle. Rokoff, on the other hand, had used little or no intelligence in his flight along the Ugambi, so that more often than not his craft had drifted in the slow-going eddies, for he habitually hugged the bank farthest from that along which the hideous horde pursued and menaced him. Thus it was that, though he had put out upon the river but a short time subsequent to the girl, yet she had reached the bay fully two hours ahead of him. When she had first seen the anchored ship upon the quiet water, Jane Clayton's heart had beat fast with hope and thanksgiving, but as she drew closer to the craft and saw that it was the Kincaid, her pleasure gave place to the gravest misgivings. It was too late, however, to turn back, for the current that carried her toward the ship was much too strong for her muscles. She could not have forced the heavy dugout upstream against it, and all that was left her was the attempt either to make the shore without being seen by those upon the deck of the Kincaid, or to throw herself upon their mercy. Otherwise, she must be swept out to sea. She knew that the shore held little hope of life for her, and she had no knowledge of the location of the friendly Mosula village to which Anderson had taken her through the darkness of the night of their escape from the Kincaid. With Rokoff away from the steamer, it might be possible that by offering those in charge a large reward they could be induced to carry her to the nearest civilized port. It was worth risking, if she could make the steamer at all. The current was bearing her swiftly down the river, and she found that only by dint of the utmost exertion could she direct the awkward craft toward the vicinity of the Kincaid. Having reached the decision to board the steamer, she now looked to it for aid, but to her surprise the decks appeared to be empty, and she saw no sign of life aboard the ship. The dugout was drawing closer and closer to the bow of the vessel, and yet no hail came over the side from any lookout aboard. In a moment more, Jane realized she would be swept beyond the steamer, and then, unless they lowered a boat to rescue her, she would be carried far out to the sea by the current and the swift ebb tide that was running. The young woman called loudly for assistance, but there was no reply other than the shrill scream of some savage beast upon the jungle-shrouded shore. Frantically, Jane wielded the paddle in an effort to carry her craft close alongside the steamer. For a moment it seemed that she should miss her goal by but a few feet, but at the last moment the canoe swung close beneath the steamer's bow and Jane barely managed to grasp the anchor Jane. Heroically she clung to the heavy iron links, 
almost dragged from the canoe by the strain of the current upon her craft. Beyond her she saw a monkey ladder dangling over the steamer's side. To release her hold upon the chain and chance clambering to the ladder as her canoe was swept beneath it seemed beyond the pale of possibility. Yet to remain clinging to the anchor chain appeared equally as futile. Finally her glance chanced to fall upon the rope in the bow of the dugout, and making one end of this fast to the chain, she succeeded in drifting the canoe slowly down until it lay directly beneath the ladder. A moment later, her rifle slung about her shoulders, she had clambered safely to the deserted deck. Her first task was to explore the ship, and this she did, her rifle ready for instant use should she meet with any human menace aboard the Kincaid. She was not long in discovering the cause of the apparently deserted condition of the steamer, for in the foxhole she found the sailors, who had evidently been left to guard the ship, deep in drunken slumber. With a shudder of disgust she clambered above, and to the best of her ability closed and made fast the hatch above the heads of the sleeping guard. Next she sought the galley and food, and having appeased her hunger, she took her place on deck, determined that none should board the Kincaid without first having agreed to her demands. For an hour or so nothing appeared upon the surface of the river to cause her alarm, but then, about a bend upstream, she saw a canoe appear in which sat a single figure. It had not proceeded far in her direction before she recognized the occupant as Rokoff, and when the fellow attempted to board, he found a rifle staring him in the face. When the Russian discovered who it was that repelled his advance, he became furious, cursing and threatening in a most horrible manner, but finding that these tactics failed to frighten or move the girl, he at last fell to pleading and promising. Jane had but a single reply for his every proposition, and that was that nothing would ever persuade her to permit Rokoff upon the same vessel with her, that she would put her threats into action and shoot him should he persist in his endeavor to board the ship, he was convinced. So, as there was no other alternative, the great coward dropped back into his dugout, and, at imminent risk of being swept to sea, finally succeeded in making the shore far down the bay, and upon the opposite side from that on which the horde of beasts stood snarling and roaring. Jane Clayton knew that the fellow could not alone and unaided bring his heavy craft back upstream to the Kincaid, and so she had no further fear of an attack by him. The hideous crew upon the shore she thought she recognized as the same that had passed her in the jungle far up the Ugambi several days before, for it seemed quite beyond reason that there should be more than one such a strangely assorted pack, but what had brought them downstream to the mouth of the river she could not imagine. Towards the day's close the girl was suddenly alarmed by the shouting of the Russian from the opposite bank of the stream, and a moment later, following the direction of his gaze, she was terrified to see a ship's boat approaching from upstream, in which, she felt assured, there could be only members of the Kincaid's missing crew, only heartless ruffians and enemies. But we'll return with Chapter 16, right after these sponsor messages. And now, Chapter 16, In the Darkness of the Night. When Tarzan of the Apes realized that he was not in the grip of the great jaws of the crocodile, he did not, as an ordinary man might have done, give up all hope and resign himself to his fate. Instead, he filled his lungs with air before the huge reptile dragged him beneath the surface, and then, with all the might of his great muscles, fought bitterly for freedom. But out of his native element the ape-man was too greatly handicapped to do more than excite the monster to greater speed as it dragged its prey swiftly through the water. Tarzan's lungs were bursting for a breath of pure, fresh air. He knew that he could survive but a moment more, and in the last paroxysm of his suffering he did what he could to avenge his own death. His body trailed out beside the slimy carcass of his captor, and into the tough armor the ape-man attempted to plunge his stone knife as he was borne to the creature's horrid den. 
his efforts but served to accelerate the speed of the crocodile, and just as the ape-man realized that he had reached the limit of his endurance, he felt his body dragged to a muddy bed and his nostrils rise above the water's surface. All about him was the blackness of the pit, the silence of the grave. For a moment Tarzan of the apes lay gasping for breath upon the slimy, evil-smelling bed to which the animal had borne him. Close at his side he could feel the cold, hard plates of the creature's coat rising and falling as though with spasmodic efforts to breathe. For several minutes the two lay thus, and then a sudden convulsion of the giant carcass at the man's side, a tremor, and a stiffening, brought Tarzan to his knees beside the crocodile. To his utter amazement he found that the beast was dead. The slim knife had found a vulnerable spot in the scaly armor. Staggering to his feet, the ape-man groped about the reeking, oozy den. He found that he was imprisoned in a subterranean chamber amply large enough to have accommodated a dozen or more of the huge animals such as the one that had dragged him here. He realized that he was in the creature's hidden nest far under the bank of the stream, and that doubtless the only means of ingress or egress lay through the submerged opening through which the crocodile had brought him. His first thought, of course, was of escape, but that he could make his way to the surface of the river beyond and then to the shore seemed highly improbable. There might be turns and windies in the neck of the passage, or, most to be feared, he might meet another of the slimy inhabitants of the retreat upon his journey outward. Even should he reach the river in safety, there was still the danger of his being again attacked before he could effect a safe landing. Still there was no alternative, and, filling his lungs with the close and reeking air of the chamber, Tarzan of the apes dived into the dark and watery hole which he could not see, but had felt out and found with his feet and legs. The leg which had been held within the jaws of the crocodile was badly lacerated, but the bone had not been broken, nor were the muscles or tendons sufficiently injured to render it useless. It gave him excruciating pain, but that was all. But Tarzan of the Apes was accustomed to pain, and gave it no further thought when he found that the use of his legs was not greatly impaired by the sharp teeth of the monster. Rapidly he crawled and swam through the passage which inclined downward, and finally upward, to open at last into the river bottom, but a few feet from the shoreline. As the ape-man reached the surface, he saw the heads of two great crocodiles but a short distance from him. They were making rapidly in his direction, and with a superhuman effort the man struck out for the overhanging branches of a nearby tree. Nor was he a moment too soon, for scarcely had he drawn himself to the safety of the limb than two gaping mouths snapped venomously below him. For a few minutes Tarzan rested in the tree that had proved the means of his salvation. His eyes scanned the river as far downstream as the tortuous channel would permit, for there was no sign of the Russian or his dugout. When he had rested and bound up his wounded leg, he started on in pursuit of the drifting canoe. He found himself upon the opposite of the river to that at which he had entered the stream, but as his quarry was upon the bosom of the water it made little difference to the ape-man upon which side he took up the pursuit. To his intense chagrin he soon found that his leg was more badly injured than he had thought, and that its condition seriously impeded his progress. It was only with the greatest difficulty that he could proceed faster than a walk upon the ground, and in the trees he discovered that it not only impeded his progress, but rendered traveling distinctly dangerous. From the old negress Tambutsa, Tarzan had gathered a suggestion that now filled his mind with doubts and misgivings. When the old woman had told him of the child's death, she had also added that the white woman, though grief-stricken, had confided to her that the baby was not hers. 
Tarzan could see no reason for believing that Jane could have found it advisable to deny her identity or that of the child. The only explanation that he could put upon the matter was that, after all, the white woman who had accompanied his son and the Swede into the jungle fastness of the interior had not been Jane at all. The more he gave thought to the problem, the more firmly convinced he became that his son was dead and his wife still safe in London, and in ignorance of the terrible fate that had overtaken her firstborn. After all, then, his interpretation of Rokoff's sinister taunt had been erroneous, and he had been bearing the burden of a double apprehension needlessly. At least so thought the ape-man. From this belief he garnered some slight surcease from the numbing grief that the death of his little son had thrust upon him. And such a death! Even the savage beast that was the real Tarzan, inured to the sufferings and horrors of the grim jungle, shuddered as he contemplated the hideous fate that had overtaken the innocent child. As he made his way painfully towards the coast, he let his mind dwell so constantly upon the frightful crimes which the Russian had perpetrated against his loved ones that the great scar upon his forehead stood out almost continuously in the vivid scarlet that marked the man's most relentless and bestial moods of rage. At times he startled even himself and sent the lesser creatures of the wild jungle scampering to their hiding places as involuntary roars and growls rumbled from his throat. Could he but lay his hand upon the Russian? Twice upon the way to the coast, bellicose natives ran threateningly from their village to bar his further progress, but when the awful cry of the bull ape thundered upon their affrighted ears, and the great white giant charged bellowing upon them, they had turned and fled into the bush, nor ventured thence until he had safely passed. Though his progress seemed tantalizingly slow to the ape-man, whose idea of speed had been gained by such standards, as the lesser apes attain, he made, as a matter of fact, almost as rapid progress as the drifting canoe that bore Rokoff on ahead of him, so that he came to the bay and within sight of the ocean just after darkness had fallen upon the same day that Jane Clayton and the Russian ended their flights from the interior. The darkness lowered so heavily upon the Black River and the encircling jungle that Tarzan, even with eyes accustomed to much use after dark, could make out nothing even a few yards away from him. His idea was to search the shore that night for signs of the Russian and the woman who he was certain must have preceded Rokoff down the Ugambi. That the Kincaid or other ship lay at anchor but a hundred yards from him, he did not dream, for no light showed on board the steamer. Even as he commenced his search, his attention was suddenly attracted by a noise that he had not at first perceived, the stealthy dip of paddles in the water, some distance from the shore, and about opposite the point at which he stood. Motionless as a statue, he stood listening to the faint sound. Presently it ceased, to be followed by a shuffling noise that the ape-man's trained ears could interpret as resulting from but a single cause, the scraping of leather-shod feet upon the rounds of a ship's monkey-ladder. And yet, as far as he could see, there was no ship there, nor might there be one within a thousand miles. As he stood thus, peering out into the darkness of the cloud-enshrouded night, there came to him from across the water, like a slap in the face, so sudden and unexpected was it the sharp staccato of an exchange of shots, and then the scream of a woman. Wounded though he was, and with the memory of his recent horrible experience still strong upon him, Tarzan of the apes did not hesitate as the notes of that frightened cry rose shrill and piercing upon the still night air. With a bound he cleared the intervening bush. There was a splash as the water closed about him, and then, with powerful strokes, he swam out into the impenetrable night with no guide save the memory of an elusive cry, and for company the hideous denizens of an equatorial river.
The boat that had attracted Jane's attention as she stood guard upon the deck of the Kincaid had been perceived by Rokoff upon one bank, and Mugambi and the horde upon the other. The cries of the Russian had brought the dugout first to him, and then, after a conference, it had been turned toward the Kincaid. But before ever it covered half the distance between the shore and the steamer, a rifle had spoken from the latter's deck, and one of the sailors in the bow of the canoe had crumpled and fallen into the water. After that they went more slowly, and presently, when Jane's rifle had found another member of the party, the canoe withdrew to the shore, where it lay as long as daylight lasted. The savage starling pack upon the opposite shore had been directed in their pursuit by the black warrior Mugambi, chief of the Wagambi. Only he knew which might be foe and which friend of their lost master. Could they have reached either the canoe or the Kincaid, they would have made short work of any whom they found there. But the gulf of black water intervening shut them off from further advance as effectually as though it had been the broad ocean that separated them from their prey. Mugambi knew something of the occurrences which had led up to the landing of Tarzan upon Jungle Island and the pursuit of the whites up the Ugambi. He knew that his savage master sought his wife and child who had been stolen by the wicked white man whom they had followed far into the interior and now back to the sea. He believed also that this same man had killed the great white giant whom he had come to respect and love as he had never loved the greatest chiefs of his own people. And so in the wild breast of Mugambi burned an iron resolve to win to the side of the wicked one and wreak vengeance upon him for the murder of the ape-man. But when he saw the canoe come down the river and take in Rokoff, when he saw it make for the Kincaid, he realized that only by possessing himself of a canoe could he hope to transport the beasts of the pack within striking distance of the enemy. So it happened that even before Jane Clayton fired the first shot into Rokoff's canoe, the beasts of Tarzan had disappeared into the jungle. After the Russian and his party, which consisted of Polvich and the several men he had left upon the Kincaid to attend to the matter of coaling, had retreated before her fire, Jane realized that it would be but a temporary respite from their attentions which she had gained, and with the conviction came a determination to make a bold and final stroke for freedom from the menacing threat of Rokoff's evil purpose. With this idea in view, she opened negotiations with the two sailors she had imprisoned in the forecastle, and having forced their consent to her plans, Upon pain of death should they attempt disloyalty, she released them just as darkness closed about the ship. With ready revolver to compel obedience, she let them up one by one, searching them carefully for concealed weapons as they stood with hands elevated above their heads. Once satisfied that they were unarmed, she set them to work cutting the cable which held the Kincaid to her anchorage, for her bold plan was nothing less than to set the steamer adrift and float with her out into the open sea, there to trust to the mercy of the elements which she was confident would be no more merciless than Nicholas Rokoff should he again capture her. There was, too, the chance that the Kincaid might be sighted by some passing ship, and as she was well stocked with provisions and water, the men had assured her of this fact, and as the season of storm was well over, she had every reason to hope for the eventual success of her plan. The night was deeply overcast, heavy clouds riding low above the jungle and the water, only to the west, where the broad ocean spread beyond the river's mouth, was there a suggestion of lessening gloom. It was a perfect night for the purposes of the work in hand. Her enemies could not see the activity aboard the ship, nor mark her course as the swift current bore her outward into the ocean. Before daylight broke, the ebb tide would have carried the Kincaid well into the Benguela current which flows northward along the coast of Africa, and, as a south wind was prevailing, Jane hoped to be out of sight of the mouth of the Ugambi before Rokoff could become aware of the departure of the steamer. Standing over the laboring seamen, 
The young woman breathed a sigh of relief as the last strand of the cable parted, and she knew that the vessel was on its way out of the maw of the savage Ugambi. With her two prisoners still beneath the coercing influence of her rifle, she ordered them upon deck with the intention of again imprisoning them in the foxhole, but at length she permitted herself to be influenced by their promises of loyalty and the arguments which they put forth that they could be of service to her, and permitted them to remain above. For a few minutes the Kincaid drifted rapidly with the current, and then with a grinding jar she stopped in midstream. The ship had run upon a low-lying bar that splits the channel about a quarter of a mile from the sea. For a moment she hung there, and then, swinging round until her bow pointed toward the shore, she broke adrift once more. At the same instant, just as Jane Clayton was congratulating herself that the ship was once more free, there fell upon her ears from a point up the river, about where the Kincaid had been anchored, the rattle of musketry and a woman's scream, shrill, piercing, fear-laden. The sailors heard the shots with certain conviction that they announced the coming of their employer, and as they had no relish for the plan that would consign them to the deck of a drifting derelict, they whispered together a hurried plan to overcome the young woman and hail Rokoff and their companions to their rescue. It seemed that fate would play into their hands, for with the reports of the guns, Jane Clayton's attention had been distracted from her unwilling assistance, and instead of keeping one eye upon them as she had intended doing, she ran to the bow of the Kincaid to peer through the darkness toward the source of the disturbance upon the river's bosom. Seeing that she was off her guard, the two sailors crept stealthily upon her from behind. The scraping upon the deck of the shoes of one of them startled the girl to sudden appreciation of her danger, but the warning had come too late. As she turned, both men leaped upon her and bore her to the deck, and as she went down beneath them she saw, confined against the lesser gloom of the ocean, the figure of another man clamber over the side of the Kincaid. After all her pains, her heroic struggle for freedom had failed. With a stifled sob, she gave up the unequal battle. Join us next week Sunday night for The Beasts of Tarzan, chapters 17 and 18. I hope you're enjoying the story as much as I am. It's a good one. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We'll return next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. (laughs) 